So Galatians 6, we are going to finish the book of Galatians this morning. Um, This will be the 16th, I believe it is, teaching in the book of Galatians, which is probably some sort of a record for us, because if you were here for Corinthians and Romans, you know it took us way longer than that. But in all fairness, Galatians is only a six-chapter book, so maybe by per capita, it's not so good. Um, But I'm going to scare you a little bit. We're going to finish Galatians 6 today by way of the book of Genesis. Now, don't freak when we go there. So uh, even now, I want you to put a finger in Galatians and turn to the book of Genesis. And uh, if, if you're new, if you're not familiar with God's word, easy to find, first book of the Bible. Genesis itself even means beginning. And what I want to do for a moment here is take an opportunity to sort of see some of the big picture of some of the principles that we've been talking about in the book of Galatians as we close this stuff out. And then we'll jump back to Galatians 6 with a slight detour in Romans and we'll finish all this stuff out in time to get you to lunch at a decent hour. Amen? So let's pray. God, will you, I pray, bless me with your grace by your spirit, the ability to teach your word, Lord, with clarity, conviction, and truth that the words shared might be faithful to your word. And then, Lord, for those that are here to hear those words, I pray, God, that you would grant them the same grace, that their hearts might be faithful to the reception and application of that text. God, we pray that we would not lord over your word this morning, but that we would submit to it, that we would be uh, humble under it, that we would receive whatever it is we need in our lives through it, and that you would just grace us through this study, Lord. We pray, God, you'd be honored in everything, Lord. So as we often say, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's what I want to start with. Every single person you know, in here or outside of here, everyone you know is searching for the same thing. We're all after the same thing. And if we could just put a tag or a name on that thing that every single person here is looking for, I'm going to call it fullness of life. That's really what everyone wants. These high school kids here that are graduating are looking forward to what they're going to go into next. And in their hearts, what they desire is a full, rich, joyful life. Those of us here, no matter what stage in life we are, we are always desiring fullness. And I don't think any of us is ever fully content here. I think in a certain sense, that's part of how God points us to the eternity that we're destined for. But there's always a longing inside every single person that we have a full, complete, rich life. Jesus pointed to this some. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, or literally that you might have fullness of life. That's what everyone wants. I mean, even when I've done marriage counseling, and you could have two people sitting on the couch that are, that are at complete opposite ends of everything, at each other's throats on everything, but when we really boil it down and I say, what are you looking for, and what are you looking for, and we boil these things down, everyone's looking for the same thing, a full, peaceful, joy-filled, rich, meaningful life. That's what everyone is looking for. Now, where you think you need to go to get that determines everything. So, so if you believe that your definition of I need a full, rich life, that means that I need an incredible career. I want to be successful in my career. If I have an amazing career, that guarantees I'm going to have a rich, full life. And so what you'll end up doing is you'll pour all your efforts, your energy, your time, all of those things into that career because you're chasing 
fullness of life, and you believe the avenue to gain that is through your job. Does that make sense? Maybe you believe that's in a relationship, and so you'll pour into that relationship and search out and invest, or maybe it's drugs, and so people will sell everything they have and forsake everything they have because they feel, I need joy that only that can provide. It could be hobbies, relationships, money, sex, any of those things. Everyone is looking for the same thing. We're looking for it in all sorts of different places. And Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have what? Life more abundantly. In other words, what he's saying is that thing that every single person's looking for is only found in one place. It's only found in me. Now, does that mean that people that don't have Jesus don't find happiness in life? No. Can unsaved people have a happy marriage? Yeah, a couple, two people, yes, you're right, everyone else is scared. Um, can, can unsaved people enjoy sex? You're much more reluctant now. Yes, yes, you can. But here's the idea. The richness, the abundant meaning purpose of all these different things in our life, you will never get there until you come through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus teaches. This is what Jesus says to us. And now Galatians, the book of Galatians that we've been studying, attacks two false notions regarding fullness of life and meaning in life that people fall into. And these two things in particular have almost have like sort of a choir robe on them. They're really churchy. They're really Christianese, if you will, in some ways. And the book of Galatians attacks them and says, don't look here. And those two things that we have been pounding on for weeks now is legalism and license. Legalism is the idea that I can control God's approval over me by my behavior. So if I do this, God's happy with me. If I do this, God's happy with me. If I do this, God's not happy with me. So, so I will do these things, and if I do these things, I'm going to earn blessings from God. And, and some of that might seem a little more foreign to you. Maybe you've seen it play out in your life where when bad things happen, you instantly go into, what have I done to upset God that he would make this stuff happen to me? Anybody ever been there? That's legalism. That's legalism. Now, Paul beats legalism like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo. Like he has crushed legalism here. And he has done it so severely and so harshly. Like, let's be honest, he stepped on our toes quite a bit through this series. Has he not? Amen? No one wants to say amen to that. Good, you don't want to look like legalists. But it's true. He has hammered this. Now, the other one that seems like it's a polar opposite to that, that seems churchy. Legalism will behave, will be good people. The other one is license. And license says, man, if, if Jesus forgives me, then I'll just do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. I, I can do all this. He'll forgive me in the end. It's, it's a version of what we've, what we've portrayed as being our own God. Now, we would never call it that, but we live that way. And what I mean by that is we go, yeah, I, I see that God's word says this and this and this, but... Uh, not for me, not right now. I'm going to choose to, I'll choose what's best for me. And I know what I need to be happy. I know what I need to go after to find that fullness of life. And so I'm not going to believe God. I'm not going to trust what God has for me. And I'm going to do things my own way. And aren't I glad that Jesus forgives and that my approval of, by Jesus isn't dependent on what I do because now I can just do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. I'll make my own way. That's license. Now, those two things seem like polar opposites. They do. 
But the heart, the core of each thing is exactly the same. The core of legalism and the core of license, when you boil it all down, is a simple failure to trust and believe God at his word. That's what it really is. So think of it like this way. The legalist does not truly believe and walk in that belief that Jesus is enough. That when, when the scriptures say, your grace is sufficient for me, that that's enough. That their approval and love of, by God is secure because of Jesus and that they don't need to go do things to earn God's favor. They don't believe that. And so you might unknowingly attach percentages to it. You'll go, yeah, Jesus' grace is awesome and I need that. And that is 90% of the Christian life. But that 10% right here is important. And so I've got to walk these things out. If not, God's going to be angry at me. Um, I'm not going to have approval of other people. I might be judged, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the person who is embroiled in legalism is failing to believe God when God says, I love you and approve of you, not because of what you do, but because of what my son has done on your behalf. And it's enough. Rest in me. That's the core of legalism. Now, the core of license is the same, even though it's a little bit different. The core of the, life of the person who's, who's dealing with licentiousness is, I refuse to believe God at his word when God says, I'm for you. I'm for your joy. And so the person who struggles with license would look at God's word, at God's rule, and say, he's holding out on me. I cannot be happy without that. If I don't have these things, I'm going to be empty in life. And so even though Jesus is supposed to be enough, and even though Jesus says, I'm the way to fullness of life, that's fine. But, but I'm going to put that aside because I need these things or I will never achieve that fullness of life. And it's the same thing. The core is the same. They're just going two different directions. Now, both of these are failures to trust God's word. And here's the thing, and, and this could, could give us a little bit of relief, I guess. It's always been this way. We've always been like this from the very beginning. So I told you I want to start out in the book of Genesis. I want you to look at the book of Genesis. And we're going to start in Genesis 1, verse 28. <clears throat> Genesis 1, verse 28. And I want you to see how this plays out. Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the bird of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you would have them for food. Now, if you're new to us, let me, let me explain. Um, God has created Adam. And from Adam, God then creates his partner, his wife, Eve. And the two of them live in absolute perfection. And here in Genesis 1.28, which is referred to as the cultural mandate, God's cultural mandate. This is the purpose originally in the creation that man was to fulfill here on the earth. And he says to them, here's the deal. You're going to go, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to subdue the earth. You're going to rule over all these kind of things. Now think about this. This is the greatest gig ever. I mean, I don't know, I used to think that probably a relief pitcher has the best job in the world because he only works an inning or two here and there and still makes bank. This is the best gig in the history of gigs, okay? I mean, think about it if you're him. You're Adam, and you just received all of this. God has blessed you. He's put all this stuff. He gives you this cultural man, and you're going, okay, let me see if I get this right. God, you've called me to live here in this garden in absolute perfection. 
You gave me a naked woman. You told me I'm not going to hurt. None of those things are there. You've put me in charge of, let me, I'm going to make sure, the whole world and everything in it. And my job, make a lot of babies and do some gardening. Is that clear, God? Because that sounds too good to be true. And yet that's exactly, this is exactly what it is. This is the cultural mandate. When people say, why would God allow things the way they are today? This is what God intended. Amen. But <laughs> the guys are like, woohoo, preach it. <laughs> but, but look, there's something else even more amazing in this. Uh, we're, we're not done right here, but I want you to look at verse 25 of chapter 2. Verse 25 of chapter 2 says this, And the man and his woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that's spectacular, and I'm I'm not talking about the nudity aspect of this. Here's what I'm saying here. They weren't ashamed. Think about that. There was nothing in them that they felt any need to hide, cover up, or feel guilty about. Nothing. That cannot be said for a single person in this room. I mean, just imagine Imagine we had the technology, and we don't yet, so don't freak, but imagine we had the technology to take any of your thoughts over the last 48 hours, convert them into a video feed, put them up on these screens, and show them here in front of the entire congregation. Let me ask you, would you want to hang out with us while we watch that? No. No. We don't know what that's like. We can't fathom what that's like. And from the very beginning, when it says that they were naked and unashamed, what it's really saying there, it's so much more than just some nudity thing. He's saying there was no need for covering anywhere. It was open, harmonious, beautiful, trustworthy, pure. It was amazing. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge in good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you will surely die. You can eat any of this stuff except for this tree, because if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Now look, that's not heavy-handed. Is that cruel? Is that withholding? You, can, you have dominion over the entire world, and you can eat everything, just not this tree. That's unbelievable. That's incredibly gracious. Now, people will go, well, why would he do that, though? Like, what's the point of that? Why would God even put that tree there in the first place? Why test them like that? And there's all sorts of theories. Probably the most common theory that I've heard about that is that because God loves and God wants men to love him back, and love requires choice, um, forced love is rape. God's not a rapist. And so the fact that there was a choice, opportunity for them to show their love was there. And, but I, I, don't, I don't subscribe. I understand it. I don't subscribe to that because I don't think that fits with the flow of scriptures and how God puts responsibility on men anywhere. The emphasis is always on God's love for men, not men's love in return back for God. And I don't see it playing out that way. What, what I tend to think is more that this was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to understand and learn the joy, peace, and harmony that comes in a life that is submitted to God and his rule. But that's a freebie. So this is the rule. Perfection, harmony, 
This is your job. There's the work you're going to do. Your wife's here. They're naked. They're completely unashamed. It is an incredible scenario. And the whole thing goes off the rails like this. Genesis 3 verse 1. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Question, did God say anything about touching the tree? Everybody do this. No, no. You see what she's doing? She's adding laws. She's adding rules right here at the very beginning. Legalists, those who have a tendency towards legalism, watch out. Right in the beginning. She's adding rules to God's word. And this is never a good idea. Fortunately, most of our kids never do that, right? Did your kids ever add rules to your rules? It doesn't really happen. But somehow as adults, anyway, look at verse four though. This is huge. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Translation, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. What God said and what you do, no big deal. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now please tell me you see the lie in this. After 16 weeks in Galatians, I'm praying you see the lie in this. Eve what you're looking for is right there and God won't let you have it. And if you try to live your life according to God's rule, you will never experience that fullness of life that you are waiting for. Everything you want is right there. Not in God, not him. It's right there. In fact, you'll be like him. You won't even need him. You don't need to depend on him. You need this. That's license right there. God's holding out on you. If you do what God calls you to, you are not going to find joy. That's what license is. And then look how Eve responds. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You see, she's looking at it like, yep, that's everything I want right there. She took of its fruit and she ate. Men, all the men. All the men say amen? No, come on now. All the men say amen? amen. That, that false amen just a second ago is an example of exactly what I'm about to talk about right now. Pay attention. Pay attention. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Men, listen up. Who ate first? Come on, men. Who ate first? Eve ate first. However... From this point forward, the Bible will forever lay the blame for the fall of mankind, not on Eve, but on Adam, for this act of passivity, because he's there the whole time. In our minds, we think Eve's off doing her gardening thing, Adam's out doing his thing, she finds an apple, and then Adam comes out, oh, what's that? That's not true. Right now, Adam's right there with her, and Eve is being lied to. She's being tempted, and really the future of all the harmony that they have is on, on the precipice right here. 
His family is being deceived and lied to, and he's right there, and he does nothing. And I'll tell you something, men. The most common sin in the church among men today, it's not pornography, I don't believe. It's not any of those things or pride. Well, I mean, everybody has pride, so maybe. But, but here's what I believe. The most common and dangerous sin among men today, it is spiritual passivity. From the very beginning, it is men that won't lead. It is men that will not take their faith seriously. It is men whose wives drive them to church every week and drag them to church instead of them protecting their family and them looking out for their family and them being men and doing what God called them to do. Adam's job was to shepherd his family and protect them and he sat there and he was passive and he did nothing. And sin and death came. Men, watch and see how much sin and death ends up in your family if you choose to be passive in spiritual things among your family like Adam did. Watch and see. Look how it played out for Adam. He's going to have two kids and right away they're gonna, one's going to murder the other. Men, do not be spiritually passive. Do not be led in your family. Lead. And if you don't know how to lead, Ask somebody. There's people around. But that's for free. So, Eve is fooled. She eats of the apple. Adam comes along. They give the apple. Now back to what we're actually here to talk about today. Look at verse 7. Look what happens. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, what? That they were naked. What do you mean they knew that they were naked? They had always been naked. They had always been naked. So what's the difference? The difference is for the first time ever, they've fallen, they've blown it, and they feel like they have something to hide. And, and it goes on, verse 7 says, And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now listen up. With Eve, we saw that temptation for license. This is legalism. We blew it. We've fallen short. We've made a mistake. We have to do something to make up for it. We have to cover up. There's something wrong. We have to do something to cover it. And God's coming, and he's angry. So we better hide. Right from the very beginning, we see legalism and license in play. And can I say this, church? There are few places where it is as easy to hide as it is in the church. I mean, here they're hiding in God's garden, but people do the same thing in church today because you can come in the doors and you can just watch around and you can learn all the religious activity that is required of you to fit in really easy. Raise your hands at the right point, give when the basket come by, sing when they sing, pick up the language, you know, cultural languages, say things that Christians say like blessings on you and things like that. Learn all those sorts of things, and before you know it, man, you fit right in, and you can totally bury yourself and totally immerse yourself in all sorts of religious activity and yet have absolutely nothing to do with God. And this is what they're doing. We blew it. So we got to cover ourselves somehow. Let's, let's get some activities together. Let's do some things. Let's cover, and we'll hide from God. Fig leaves and hiding. And so right here in the very beginning of the world, 
we see these two things that Paul is hammering in the book of Galatians at play. There's license and there's legalism. And they completely enslave Adam and Eve and they have enslaved us since that day. And neither one of those, I mean, look at the results of that. What happened, legalism and license, it destroyed the fullness of life that they had in God. Do you see it? It destroyed it. That's the introduction. Let's look at Galatians chapter 6 and see how Paul closes out this letter. He's going to close it out with an emphasis. He says in Galatians 6 verse 11, He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, that's not like when your kid's writing a letter and says, Mommy and Daddy, look, I did my capital letters. That's not not what he's saying. When a letter was written in that day, a guy like Paul would have a scribe with him, and he would dictate as the scribe wrote the letter out. But Paul, as we know, has been fired up in this letter, right? We've seen it. He has been hammering stuff left and right. He has used words that are shocking to us in Christian culture. He's called people in the church fools. He has said, I wish those people would emasculate themselves. I mean, he said stuff that just, if I said them regularly here, you would probably put me in church discipline. I mean, he's fired up at this point. And so he gets to a certain point as he's ready to close this letter out. And you can just imagine, if you will, Paul goes to his scribe, yanks the pen out of his hand, shoves the guy out of the way, sits down and goes, now listen to me. He's writing now with his own hand. If he was texting, kids, this is all caps, bold face, size 18 font. This is what he's doing right now. With emoticons, with that steam coming out the ear, like that's what he's doing, okay? Paul's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, if you're new with this, this just got weird, um, because somehow in the middle of all this, we started talking about circumcision, and you're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything that's going on, and I got to get out of here before they make us line up. Now, here's what this means. What circumcision then was, it was an exterior sign of the covenant. It was a symbol and a sign that marked you as one of God's people. And it wasn't the only one. Um, They were certain foods that the people of God would eat and certain foods that they would not eat to set them apart. There were certain religious practices they would go through, certain cleansing rituals, all sorts of stuff like that that they would be a part of that set them apart as God's people. So circumcision was one of those things. And what's going on right now in this particular time, as Paul's writing a letter to these churches in Galatia, modern-day Turkey, is that People who were planted into these churches built on the grace of Jesus have now been infiltrated by people that still hold to all of these old Jewish covenants. You see, excuse me, before Christ, the people of God were marked by external behavior. You knew who God's people were by the things they did externally, by circumcision, by cleansing rituals, by all that. But when when Jesus came, that changed. Because instead of an outside-in kind of religion, Jesus came, changed the heart, and it was an inside-out now. And then Jesus says, they will know your Christians by your what? Love for one another, by the fruits of the Spirit being displayed with one another. These heart things take place. So Jesus comes in, changes the heart, and then we can recognize who are God's people through this. So it's a complete reversal of everything that's going on, right? 
And so Paul's saying, these people that are coming into the church and saying, yeah, Jesus is enough, but you still have to hold to all these laws and these religious practices. They're only doing this, first of all, to make a good showing. They're, They're trying to show how incredible they are, how religious they are, how spiritual they are. But also it says they're doing this in order to that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And you say, what does that mean? Well, the cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely offensive to the flesh. Because for these people, they're saying, for you to earn favor with God, you have to do these different things. Your salvation is sort of a to-do list, which almost makes it like a sport. If you, if you do this and this and this, then you're covered, you're in, you're saved. And so what that does is it puts salvation in whose hands? Our hands. I'm now in charge of my salvation. It's up to me to do this. It's up to me to do this, 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 this. And if I do all these things, I'm covered. But that's not what the gospel says. You have no hope. You can't possibly in yourself do what's required to earn salvation, to earn approval with God. You cannot do this, but God can and has, and you just need to trust it and stop depending on yourself so much. And to a group of people who have spent their entire existence living according to this legalistic attitude, that is a massive offense to who they are. Preaching the cross then was horribly, um, brought all sorts of persecution. As we'll see in a minute, Paul's own body bore the marks of that kind of persecution. And so the understanding that this sort of pride that these people had is just ridiculous. Paul goes on in verse 13 and says something very profound. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we spent a whole week on this, but what he's saying here is he's referring to something he's already taught. You have two options. You either live under the law of God or you live under the grace of God. You're either covered by his grace or you're trying to cover yourself by the law. But if you're under the law, remember, you have to hold how much of it? All of it. Not this pick and choose thing that we all do so well. All of it. All of it. Not just the, uh, I don't drink and I don't murder and I'm not doing any of those things, but all of it. Sins of the heart, all of those things. And Paul's saying, no one can do that. The people that are putting this pressure on you, they can't even do that themselves. But they're putting this on you. Why? That they might boast. Makes them feel like, look, I'm putting this on you. It's a spiritual hierarchy. They feel like they're in this position of authority. And he goes on to say in verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And he says, far be it from me to boast. Jesus is our grounds of boasting. Boasting in anything other than Jesus Christ, is ridiculous. And Paul breaks this down in a really good detailed fashion in Romans chapter 3. I've got some slides for you so you can actually see this text yourself. But I want you to see how Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans 3 verse 21. He says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest or, or made visible apart from the law, although the law and prophets do bear witness to it. Says the righteousness of God is not achievable by the law, though the law does point to God's glory, God's righteousness. But verse 22, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned, if you've been in church at all, you know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, or in other words, made right by his grace as a, what? Come on, say it nice and loud. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So let's break this down in reverse. There is a gift. This gift has been given by God to you. This gift is unmerited favor and approval. In other words, God loves you and approves of you even though you don't deserve it. It's a gift given to you freely. And in the giving of that gift, God's glory is made visible to the world around because he saved you even though you don't deserve it. That's what he's saying. That's the gospel, that he saved those who can't possibly deserve it. And so if you keep going from there, look at verse 24 again. And they are justified by his grace as a what again? Come on now. As a gift. One, two, three. Gift. That's a little bit better. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me try to break that down for you. It's like, wait, past sins and and, in the present time and what does propitiation mean? Let, Let me break this down. In the Old Testament, God has a massive, massive problem. And his problem is he loves, blesses, and delights in people that are train wrecks. So, for example, David. Let's consider David. David is called a man after what? God's own heart. You guys knew that one. Well done. David is a man after God's own heart. God delights in David. He blesses David. He gives David a throne and says, I'm going to have your throne rule forever. He even says of David, I'm going to make my descendants come through you. And the stuff he does, the way he chooses to work through David and the blessings he pours out on this man are incredible. But what's the problem? David is far from incredible. If anything, what David does is incredible. He's an adulterer who then takes this man's wife and murders the man that she was married to. I mean, David's a train wreck. You can read the Psalms and you see all sorts of situations where David was in fear and in doubting and uh, and there's just all sorts of issues regarding David and David's family became a train wreck and and you can see all these sorts of things and then God yet says, this is a man after God's own heart. This is a man after my own heart. We would have to look at that and go, are you kidding me? I mean, look, if David was applying for a pastoral position at Heritage, we would never hire him. Seriously. So God, what are you doing? God, don't you understand what this guy did? Don't you understand what a train wreck David did? You should be appalled. And God's response would be, I am absolutely appalled at David's sin. You want to see how appalled I am? Look at the cross. Look at the end result. Look at the wrath of my hatred of sin poured out on Jesus Christ. And then he's able to say, but because of the grace and because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, this is my man after my own heart. And he does this throughout all. When when Jesus died on the cross, he, he died for all of David's sins, past tense. 
as well as all of those of faith in the Old Testament. Read Hebrews 11. You see Abraham, Moses, all these giants of the Old Testament. The work of Christ on the cross was an eternal work. And so when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of David, he also died on the cross for the sins of who? Us. And now, but this is what this means. The same grace that was afforded David is then afforded you. Listen to me. How, how bad do you think you blew it? <laughs> because to an adulterer, murderer, chicken, all sorts of kids out of control, to that guy, he says, this is a man after my own heart. And that same approval and grace has been given to you. If that doesn't do something in your heart, you don't get it. Like that's the level of forgiveness. I don't care what you came in here off of, whether it was a five-hour prayer meeting or an all-night bender. The grace and approval of God has been extended to you, not because of you, but because of Jesus Christ. Because as Romans says, God is just and the justifier of sins. And so Romans will go on to say, then who can bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is who? Nobody. There's no higher court. There's nowhere else to go. And the one that the charge would be brought to has already covered the sins committed eternally. Totally should have got an amen, don't you think? Totally should. I thought for sure. I even wrote my notes. Probably going to get an amen right here. Scratch that out. You are not, I don't care who you are in this room, you are not outside the grace and mercy of God. And if you have, that's, <laughs> well done. Listen, and I don't care how bad you think you are, you have that voice of Satan in your ear all the time condemning you, you know, the cartoons, the little red dude over here and the little angel over here. If you're going, yeah, but you don't know, you don't know. I mean, with all, all the grace in my heart, can I just say this? You're just going to have to get over yourself. Because God's grace covers your sin. All of it including the ones you haven't done yet. So why would we want to go back to the law? Oh, that's going to make me end the sermon early. We can't have that. Let's move forward. Verse 27 of Romans, concluding this. Can we put this verse up? So knowing all of that, then what becomes of our boasting? It is, what's the word? Nice and loud for me. It is excluded. It is excluded. So can we just say it honestly? The backbiting and the envy and the garbage that goes on in our church when we point fingers at one another because we think we're so awesome, it's stupid. It's foolishness because there is no room for boasting. It was a gift given to you when you absolutely didn't deserve it. You didn't do nothing. So how in the world can we become the kind of people that then turn around, plant our feet on those same scriptures and point fingers at one another and try to point out others' sin and put ourselves in competition with one another? It's foolishness. There is no room for boasting in the church of Jesus Christ. None. It makes absolutely no sense. And the gospel frees us. Instead of competing against one each other, we can be for one another. I mean, look, I get compliments, especially when I'm out in public with my kids all the time. 
but I cannot believe how sweet your kids are. I cannot believe how, it's, it's usually um, in a restaurant and it's probably, no offense, but it's older people who are so glad that the kids that got planted next to them in the restaurant are quiet. That's usually what it is. But um, all the time I'm getting compliments, like I can't believe how great your kids are. I can't believe, you know, all this kind of stuff. And look, I could easily go, well, you know, the reason is, is well, I got, I'm a good parent and I did some studying and I, but here's the reality of it. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, we're guessing half the time. We're doing the best we can as we go. But I mean, by the grace of God, God has made my daughters who they are. On Easter, I got to baptize my youngest daughter. It is by God's grace that they are saved. It's got nothing to do with me. I know that for a certainty because there are other people, even in this room, who have been more faithful as a parent, more dedicated to God's word, and done a better job of preaching the gospel into their children's lives than I did, and their children have gone off the rails, and it's not because they were unfaithful. The reality is only God can save. And so for me to boast in my children as if there's some sort of badge of honor for my skill as a parent or my godliness as a pastor is foolishness. Foolishness. And so with one another, in any successes we have, we, we can avoid this hierarchy of I'm here and they're here, but if they work harder, maybe they'll get to us or any of that kind of boasting. It's ridiculous. And the Bible over and over and over hammers that like a nail. The Mount Everest of this is in Ephesians, which we'll get to really soon. We'll be starting Ephesians next week. And in Ephesians it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. In other words, stop it. Just be grateful. Just stop it. Just glory in the grace of God and stop looking down your nose at other people and allowing the gospel that is intended to bind us together to be something that fractures the church. It happens all the time and it's sin and it's foolishness. Stop it. Amen, Heritage? Amen. Ah. Okay, so back to Galatians. Verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me, let me touch on one more thing on this. I, I talked about the fact that we can now be for one another, not against one another. The reason is, Paul says, we've, we've been crucified to the world and I, I to the world and the world to me. So in other words, this, I no longer have to go through seeking approval and fulfillment in other things because I find all of it in Christ. So I don't have to live in fear of what you think of me. I don't have to strive for the approval of other people because I have received it in Christ. I don't have to make my children a trophy for my parenting skills because it's by grace anyway and my approval comes from Christ. And therefore now, I don't ha there's none of this competition anymore. I can be for one another. I can come alongside the one who's struggling in areas where maybe I've been graced, offer help or just prayer. But there's none of this competition, none of this backbiting. I don't need anything from anybody because I have everything in Jesus. I'm warm there. I'm covered there. I'm fulfilled there. Life is full there. And so I'm free from all of that stuff. That's what Christ desires to do in us. And in verse 15, he goes on to say, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We hammered this. We spent a whole week on this. 
legalism, license, what you do, what you don't do, religious activity, irreligious activity, none of that stuff has any bearing whatsoever on your salvation and approval before God. None of it. The only thing that determines our standing before God is Jesus Christ. That's it. Whether you've been on a five-hour prayer or a five-hour bender, that is not what determines how God feels about you. God's feelings to you are not prisoner to your actions. But they have been fulfilled because of Jesus Christ. The only thing that counts is that you've been made into a new creation. That God has saved you. He's given you new affections, a new heart. That he's working in you. That's what matters. It's him again, not you. Verse 16 And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The law versus grace rule. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, let me just, we're almost done here. Let me just break this down super fast. The Israel of God is another way of saying God's people. So now we who are the covenant members, or or, excuse me, the um, under the new covenant of God who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are the children of God. We would be the Israel of God, if you will, in this passage, correct? You understand? He breaks that down in Romans. You can go read that later. But, but here's the idea. For the people of God, it says, we have peace and mercy. For the people who walk by grace, not law, there is peace and mercy. And understand what this means. There is peace, meaning there is mutual harmony. There's mutual harmony between us and God because we understand our sins have been covered and God has extended grace. There's none of that fear and hiding. There's mutual harmony with God. But even more important, this is awesome. I want you to see this. There is peace and mercy. That word mercy, there's a nuance in there in the Greek language that's, that's really, really, you have to dig for it, but, but it's there. There are pieces of that Greek language there when he speaks of mercy that means to change the subject. And you think, that doesn't sound like mercy. I've never known mercy to be described as to change the subject. It is. This is what I mean by that. That as we stand before God or in the condemnation of other people, and we go, God's not pleased with me. I have blown it over and over. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. But because of Christ, we have peace with God and mercy because God looks at you then and says, I know, I know, but look what I did. He's changing the subject on you. Do you see this? I can't possibly have approval before God. Do you understand what's wrong with me? Or we could point the finger at other. That guy can't possibly have approval before God. Don't you see what he does? And God changes the subject. Stop looking at you and look at me. That is an incredible truth. That's mercy. He's saying, will you stop looking within for some reason for approval that doesn't exist? Change the subject. Stop thinking about that. Look to me, and I guarantee you, because of the work of Jesus Christ, you have my approval. Again, totally missed that amen. Anyway, verse 17, let's close this out. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul was beaten to a pulp because of his stance with grace. And I'm going to tell you something, church, right now. If you grasp this stuff and you choose to not just believe but to walk in Christianity, the Galatians-type Christianity, I'll tell you right now, in the church world, you will take a beating too. It is not popular. It is not easy. 
It is an affront to the pride of people, to traditions of people, to expectations of other people to walk according to grace. I'll tell you right now, I have gotten all sorts of, whether it be complaint emails or had face-to-face meetings with people who were upset with different things that I've preached before. It's happened from day one. That's just part of preaching God's word. Um, It's been said before that if you're not causing somebody to be upset, then you're not preaching. But I'll tell you right now, the harshest emails I have ever gotten, no matter what the subject are, always deal with this, always. And they're harsh. When you choose to walk in grace, don't, don't put this picture in your mind that you're just going to float around with clouds all the time and that no one's ever going to have an issue with it. The grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to the flesh. And those who are choosing to walk in it, inside the church or outside the church, they will hate this. And Paul's saying, I, I, I'm trying, I'm not going to let anyone bother me anymore. Look, my body shows the results of this kind of preaching. And he closes out with a prayer that's really, really important. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is his closing prayer, and it's needed for every one of us. Because here's the thing. We can sit here and study this stuff and we can look at this and there can be times where maybe you study some of these truths or these truths are preached and the Spirit's moving in them and your heart is opened to them and you can be just moved. Have you not? Have you not had those times when you're understanding the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and it's like wind comes into your sails and it's like it's just carrying you and it's incredible. Have we not ever had those times? But don't we also know that it's just a matter of time before we're going to find ourselves drawn back to those same two things. I've got to earn God's approval because I've blown it. Or God's holding out on me and I'm only going to be happy if I this, this, and this. I need that and God's withhold. We're all human and we all are sinful and fallen. By God's grace, I pray we're getting better and better. But until that day when we meet Jesus face to face, we are going to battle that flesh till the day we die. And that is why it is so important that we have this same prayer on our lips, that the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ forever be applied to our lives. In other words, you need to be preaching this gospel to yourself every minute of every day. Because you can float out of here like, oh, mercy and grace, and I'm forgiven, and that's amazing. But you're going to go out there, and something's going to happen. Satan is not going to let us just walk around on this stuff unmolested. Condemnation is coming. Temptation is coming. Difficulty with one another is coming. And this is where we must be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves. This is, wait a minute. I don't have to get worked up about this right now because even if they don't approve of me, God does. Wait a minute. I don't have to walk in shame over this situation anymore because God has forgiven me of this. God has freed me of this. And who's going to bring charge against me if I'm God's elect? Wait a minute. I don't have to live through the expectations of other people when they're adding laws to God's gospel or when they're condemning me for this or that because I am called to God's word, God's word alone, and I am saved by God's grace, and there is freedom in that. And so if there's anything that comes out of our time in the book of Galatians, I pray that every single one of you are able to leave this place knowing how to preach the gospel to yourself because we should all be preachers. And our most common congregation should be ourselves. When conclusion, and Sam's going to come up here and close us in song. 
There's a couple of different types of people here. Some of you are sowing fig leaves. There's people here that are here thinking that your very attendance in this room makes God happy with you or balances the scales for other things that you've done or whatever the case may be that that you have to do this to feel good Or, or you could be here and hear things in this teaching that put a burden on you like, oh, I have to do that or God's gonna be upset. Let me encourage you. Let me plead of you. Trust God's word. He has delighted in you, not because of you, but because of the Son. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have given of your life, you believe in him, who he is, and his redemptive work on the cross, don't buy in to that legalistic garbage. Trust his grace and walk in it. The other type of person here is the licentiousness, that you just don't believe that God's for you. You don't believe that God's word is going to lead you to any sort of joy. You believe that you have to take matters into your own hands. You think you're buying into the same lie Eve did, that if I do what God's telling me to do, I'm not going to have joy. I'm not going to have peace. And let me, let me assure you, let me encourage you. Trust God at his word. He will not make a fool of you. Trust God at his word. And heritage... I don't want to see us believing those lies anymore. I don't want to see us buying into the lies of legalism that pit brother against brother and draw lines of division here amongst our own congregation. I don't want to see us become the kind of church that's adding law to law to law and as a result we're forgetting the very gospel that we're saved by because we're too busy dealing with all these other things. I don't want to see us become the kind of people who are in competition with one another. That's what legalism does. I want to see us become the kind of church that is gracious and that is for one another because of the grace of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, too, not buying into the lies that say that because we have grace, we can just go do whatever we want, but that we would understand the gospel to such a degree that our heart and desire would be to serve and worship Jesus in every area of our life. I'm telling you, church, if we do this, we will have a very full life here. Amen? Will you stand with me? God, will you give us just this moment, we pray, as we sing this last song, Lord, this this song that reminds us again that nothing can cover us but your blood. Lord, will you root out our hearts and bring us, Lord, the peace and mercy that your word promises for those who walk by faith? And will you empower us by your spirit to walk according to your gospel as we leave? We commit these last few minutes to you in Jesus' name.